Well, this morning's passage comes from Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can find it in your own Bibles or follow in your bulletin. The, the passage is printed there for you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be fruitful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would give us, your people, eyes to see and ears to hear. The message that the Spirit has for the churches in this second chapter of Revelation as we look together at these letters to the seven churches, would you help us to understand what it is that you're revealing to your church? Would you exhort us and encourage us? Would you challenge us, Lord God, and would you make us to rest upon your Son, Jesus Christ, as he's revealed in this book and in your word? We thank you that your Spirit is here among us, and we pray that he would have his will among your people, that we would be made more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, you have probably heard me say it a few times over the last three weeks, but I believe that this book of Revelation primarily deals with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, the events that lead up to that, the events that deal with that, and the events that immediately follow his ascension into heaven. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to see lots of cataclysmic and cosmic descriptions that are explaining the war to end all wars. Think of it like this. 
The events that are described in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles are our experience of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when the book of Revelation is primarily dealing with what is happening in the heavens, okay? What is happening from an eternal perspective. And so every description that we read of the skies being darkened and of the mountains being thrown into the sea and of the dragon who is waiting to devour the child and of the Son of Man who rides on the white horse conquering the nations, all of this is the cataclysmic, cosmic description of what is actually happening in the events that lead up to, that happen during the life of, and the events that follow the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through the book, as we look at those cosmic descriptions, I, I hope you'll see all the connections to the actual life of Jesus Christ. Okay? But a question remains that will be largely dealt with in the book of Revelation, and it goes something like this. After the coming of Jesus, the world is turned on its head. That's what's described in the book of Revelation. The world is turned on its head. Everything has been changed. Everything has been altered. The most monumental event in the history of humanity has happened. And now the question that remains for the church is, how ought we to live now? Now that the world's been turned upside down, now that everything has been altered, what does it look, for us, look like for us as Christians to live in this world? To live in these last days, okay? So in chapters 2 and chapters 3, we're going to see seven exhortations to seven churches that are essentially Jesus' instructions to them how to live in these last days. How ought you to live in the world that has been turned on its head? This morning, we're going to look at Ephesus and Smyrna. Next week, two more churches, and then the, fo the following week, the final three churches. The beautiful thing about this is just as Ephesus and Smyrna are asking the question, how do we live in these last days? So, Mercy Presbyterian Church, living in these last days, basically asks the same questions. How do we live in the world that's been turned on its head because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? All right? So that's what we're looking at this morning. Now, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna, Ephesians, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The beautiful thing about these two exhortations is that they're part of a circular letter. So each of these addresses to the churches would have been read in each of the other churches. So the Christians in Smyrna would have said, oh, that's what's happening in Ephesus. Interesting. Okay? That's what Jesus says to them. Or they'd pick up on what was happening in Pergamum. But at the same time, each of these letters is almost a self standing alone letter. You could lift out the words to the church of Ephesus. You could fold it up, stick it into an envelope, send it to the church in Ephesus, and they would say, oh, this is, a, this is a letter. Great. It has all the parts of the letter, the to and the from and the body and the exhortation and then the final conclusion. So we'll see in each of the addresses to these churches, we will see the various parts of what we'd expect in a letter. Now, how does the letter to the church in Ephesus begin? It says it's to the angel of the church of Ephesus. We, we don't have time this morning to talk about our theology of angels. Maybe some point in the book of Revelation we'll get there, which we can't talk about. There's too much to talk about, okay? Who's the letter from? Now, instead of Jesus saying, this is from Jesus, I'm writing you, this is from the second person of the Trinity, to every church he will pick up on some illustration from the vision in chapter 1, and he will describe himself in that way. And so how does he describe himself in the letter to the Ephesians. He says this, I'm the one who holds the stars in my hands, okay, that was in chapter one, and I'm the one who walks uh, among the lampstands. Now, you, you should know that 
as we read every description of Jesus in these first two chapters, every time he describes himself, he is essentially answering an important question for the church that he addresses. So you'll see something about the Ephesians that Jesus' presence walking among the lampstands is actually answering a question for them. It is providing a means of grace that they wouldn't otherwise have, okay? So now we get to the body of the observation, uh, the body of the letter, and in the body we'll see an observation, an exhortation, and a promise. There are two observations that Jesus makes about the church in Ephesus. The first observation happens in verses 2 through 3 and in verses uh, 5 and 6, okay? And you see there, first of all, an observation that the church in Ephesus had done something really, really well. He was commending them. He was encouraging them. And what, what was it that they were doing well in the church in, in Ephesus? I would summarize it by saying they had a doctrinal integrity, Okay, so you can just write that as a summary. They had a doctrinal integrity. Listen to the words in verses 2 and 3. I I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Okay, this is the thing that he commends the church in Ephesus for. Essentially, that they had resisted the influence of the world, the attacks from within and from without, and they had held firm to the Word of God. Now, this is crucial for the church in Ephesus because of everything that we know about the city of Ephesus, okay? Ephesus is the booming metropolitan city in modern-day Turkey. It's the largest city on the continent at this time. And in Ephesus, there was every kind of designer religion that you could imagine, that there were gods and goddesses who had the public places of worship and public sacrifices, and there were libraries and universities dedicated to the religions of the world. Ephesus was the capital of the Jewish occult, okay? So these are national Jews who practice some sort of magic and witchcraft. There in Ephesus, that was what was happening. So this is the, the, the city of Ephesus, and it is the, largely the influence that the Ephesians are having to deal with And Jesus, as he writes to encourage them, he says, you have been faithful in this way. You have protected the word of God. You have been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for this, you are to be commended. One commentator in speaking about this, he said, the church's intolerance was as politically incorrect in the midst of ancient pluralism as it would be today. But it reflected Jesus' intolerance of poisonous lies and of liars who would prey on his sheep. So, so there you hear him saying, listen, just as much as your adherence to the word of God today is not acceptable in the culture around you, so it was in Ephesus. And Jesus commends them that yet in the midst of that they have been faithful to the word of God. Look at how he says it in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there he commends them. They hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Who, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, they're only mentioned twice in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we have very few details about them. But what we do know, especially from the second mention of them, is that somehow they were people who took the Christian faith and they were partnering it together with some sexual immorality. Maybe it was homosexuality or adultery, some sort of odd fornication, but they were saying to the Christians in the church, you can have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you can have sexual immorality. Those two things together can be yours. They're not mutually exclusive, okay? And, and they were the Nicolaitans. Irenaeus, in the second century, he, he says that this is a cult that arose from Nicholas, one of the first six deacons in the church uh, in, in the book of Acts. Uh, that Nicholas, who was appointed to serve the church, began to develop this uh, mindset that was heretical to the church, and here now it is impacting the Christians in Ephesus. Jesus says to the Ephesian church, I, I, I like this about you. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans just as I hate their work. The wonderful, beautiful thing about the church in Ephesus is that this doctrinal integrity that was paramount to them came to define the church in Ephesus for hundreds of years after this. Okay? The, the church in Ephesus thrives for at least two or 300 more years, and here's what Ignatius says about them in the early second century. He says, you all in Ephesus live according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if he speaks of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. I have learned that certain persons passed through you bringing evil doctrine, and you did not allow them to sow seeds among you. Now listen to this description. You did not allow them to sow seeds among you, for you stopped up your ears so that you might not receive the seed that was sown by them. You are arrayed from head to foot in the commandments of Jesus Christ. So this church was celebrated for being faithful to the Word of God. And Jesus Christ himself says, well done, Christians in Ephesus, okay? But not only does he observe this about them, he also observes something negative about the church in Ephesus, and that in verse 4. They had left their first love, the love that they had at first, their first love. And that's what he says in verse 4. Again, this is what the text says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first, okay? And many people, if you've read, ever read or heard this passage preached, many people have sort of postulated what does that mean? They've come up with all sort of strange ideas that I would say not supported by the text. So if we're to look at the passage, what exactly does this mean? They had left their first love. Well, let me tell you, it's the, the Greek word you're all very familiar with, the, the words agape. And the Greek word agape for love, it doesn't appear anywhere else in this book except one other time right after this in the exhortation to the church at Thyatira. And to the church at Thyatira, as Jesus is speaking to them, he says in verse 19 of this chapter, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and servants, uh, service and patient endurance. Okay? And many of the good commentators would point out that there are two word couplets here that are related one to the other, that there are harmonious word couplets, so that there Jesus is saying you, you have faith and patient endurance. Those are two things that go together. And that you have love and service. Those are two things that go together. And so the argument is made in this passage that as Jesus is speaking to the churches and using the word love, he's primarily speaking about the love that they have for one another. For it logically follows that they also would serve one another. That would be their service. So I believe the most likely explanation of the exhortation in verse 4 is that the church in Ephesus had lost their love for the people that were around them. 
for those that they came into contact with day in and day out. And you know what? Who could blame them? Who could blame them, right? I mean, in one sense, from a human perspective, who could blame them? They're the church in Ephesus who for 30 years now had been defending the gospel of Jesus Christ from the attack of people from outside and from within. You heard the New Testament reading this morning from Acts chapter 20 when Paul says to the Ephesian elders, beware of the wolves for they will arise from among you and they will devour the sheep within the flock. They have been protecting the church from that and defending it in doctrinal integrity and protecting it from the various fallacies and the heresies of the world. And they've been doing this again and again for years and years. Who would blame them that their love for the people around them had grown cold? In one sense, it's a very logical place for that church to be at that moment. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, predicted that this would happen. He prophesied this in Matthew chapter 24, if you want to look at it, it's significant to the understanding of the letter to the Ephesians. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 10. So if you remember Matthew 24, that's the passage where Jesus is speaking about the end days, okay? He says, in, in those last days, here's what it will be like. And he's describing that context, okay? So the Ephesian church that is now in these last days, we who are in these last days, listen to the words that he says what it will be like after the world is turned on its head in these last days. Matthew 24, actually beginning in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and they will betray one another and they will hate one another and many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. Okay? Now stop there for a second. The description I just read, I imagine the Ephesians were saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, many are against one another. Many false prophets have arisen. They have led many astray. That's exactly what we're dealing with in Ephesus. Jesus gets us. But the next line, particularly important for the Ephesian church, okay? So many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, but this is what verse 12 says. And because lawlessness will be increased, that's what happens when false prophets arise. Lawlessness increases, like through the Nicolaitans. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. See the connection? Right? The church is divided. It's threatened from the outside. False prophets arise. Chaos ensues. Lawlessness ensues. And the church is fighting the battles. And what happens because of that? The love of many will grow cold. You can resonate with that, can't you? The, the love of many will grow cold. So what does Jesus exhort them to? He exhorts them to this very thing in verse 5. He says to remember, to repent, and to return to the love that you had at first. Essentially saying to them, go back to the very beginning when you first trusted Christ, before the church was under attack, uh, before you were fighting against the world to resist what was happening to the church, go back to the beginning when you received Christ, when the church was first begun in Ephesus. Return the love for others that you had at first, for the world around you. And he exhorts them to love those around them as they did at the first. Let me say, this call of Christ is a 
paradoxical call. It, it makes no sense. Jesus celebrates their rigid defiance of the false prophets who are trying to destroy the church. And he says to them, and oh, by the way, love them as well. Resist them, but love them. Fight them, but care for them. Defend the gospel, but be open to outsiders, okay? I say it's a paradoxical call because we don't know how to do both things well, right? I mean, there are those who love others really well and probably a little bit soft on defending the word. And then there are those who defend the word really well, but they're pretty weak on loving others. And we say, how do we do do both well? How do we defend the word of God from, from those who want to destroy it and yet love them? Well, let me just say something. Jesus is the greatest example of this, isn't he? He's the one who fought the powers of hell as they manifest themselves in the, in the people of this world. And yet he loved them even as he was rigid against the attacks of Satan. He loved those well that he ministered to, and yet he would not allow the word of God to be perverted and to be manipulated. What is the, the promise in this passage? It also comes in verse 5. When I say promise, I use the word loosely because this is an interesting promise. If you do not remember, repent, and return, I will remove your lampstand. If you do not remember, repent, and return, I will remove your lampstand, which is essentially Jesus saying to the church, um, if you don't, I will rearrange you. I'll get rid of this church. I'll start a new church. I'll shake it up. I'll move it around. I, I, I will do something. Your prominence as a church, a lampstand before the Son of Man, it will be removed. And, and Christ will do that. So that's the promise. Let me just say this, and then we'll move on to the church of Smyrna. As it concerns us, how can we not see that the church in Ephesus is very much like our church today? Right? The world that we live in. Of course it is. The very things that the Ephesian church were facing are the very things that we face today. You know, every day... I pray for my children. I pray for the next generation. Why? Because I look around the world and I say, what's the world that they will grow up in? It's a world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being perverted by those who claim to be Christians. It is a world that idolizes and immortalizes tolerance and opinions and and no firm word or revelation or truth. It is a world that everywhere we look is promoting promiscuity, sensuality, adultery, homosexuality, right? Those things are everywhere we go, and they're in culture, and they're in entertainment, and they're in education, and and they can't be avoided, okay? So in that world, as the church, our natural instinct is to fight. And it's a good instinct. Don't get me wrong. But too often, the way we view it is we're going to build the wall to the castle, We're going to get out the catapult, and we're going to destroy every person outside the wall, right? Take no prisoners, because they're all a threat to the kingdom, okay? And that's the only way we know how to deal with the things that we're facing. I want to exhort and encourage you that as you continue in faithfulness to the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to forget the love that you had at first. Not to forget the calling that Christ Jesus has given us to love those who are outside the church. 
even as we defend from the attacks of those who would attempt to destroy the church. Welcome the outsider. Demonstrate the love of Christ in all that you do. Let your love be genuine and sincere. Lay down your life as Christ laid down his. Do not consider others more highly than yourself. For as the Apostle Paul said, if you speak in tongues and you have prophetic powers and you understand mysteries and and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains, and if you defend the Word of God and you stand firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet you have not love, you are nothing but a clanging cymbal and a banging gong and you are nothing. And so Jesus Christ would exhort us as well not to forget the love that we had at first. It's an easy temptation. This is the first thing to remember in these last days. Second thing, Christ speaks to the church in Smyrna that begins in verse 8. So this letter concludes in verse 7. You see the conclusion in verse 7? In verse 8, we pick up to the church in Smyrna. This is to the angel of the church in Smyrna. It is from, how does Jesus describe himself? It is from the first and the last. It is from the one who died and is now alive. Okay? You want to foreshadow into what's happening in the church of Smyrna? Simply look at the description of Jesus in verse 8. The first and the last, the one who died and is alive. Some, somehow, for some reason, the church in Smyrna needs to hear about the death and the life of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Jesus begins with his first observation of this church, and it is that this is a church that is enduring tribulation and persecution. Listen to what verse 9 says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So let me just briefly explain what's happening here. The Roman Empire that had been expanding for years had made it their practice. Every people that they conquered, they were to conform to them religiously. They were to worship the Roman gods and goddesses to make public sacrifice. And then more recently, let's say under Nero and Caligula and Domitian, the practice had been also to worship the emperor, okay, emperor worship. Well, the relationship between the Jews and, and the Roman Empire had begun to become a good relationship, so much so that the Jews were permitted to worship their God alone. That had happened before Jesus' time, okay? But now, in the first century church, the Jews who were realizing that the world had been turned on its head, that Jesus had now identified the people of God, and it was not the nation of Israel, but it was the people of God from every tribe and nation and tongue, Uh, who weren't born into the people of God, but were joined by faith, as the Jews began to realize that in the early church, you know what they did? They thought, how can we thwart this weird sect that has arisen among us? And so what they did was very simple. They went to the Roman authorities and they said, hey, they're not with us. We didn't come together in the same car. That was a joke. There's no cars, okay? Uh, Essentially, they're saying... um, They're the Christians, and they're not part of us. They are not Jewish, okay? So the provision under the law to be able to worship our God does not extend to them. Just want you to know that, all right? 
And so it, it allowed the Christians to be outed and then to be persecuted by the Roman government. That is why Jesus describes them in verse 9 as though uh, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, those Jews who are persecuting the church and handing you over to persecution, they're, they're working on behalf of the evil one, okay? They are a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus addresses this church in Smyrna that is experiencing this intense persecution, first of all at the hands of the Jews, and then second of all by the Roman government and the authorities. In, verses, in verse 10, we begin to see this exhortation uh, in 10a, 10b, the whole chapter, a uh, whole verse of 10. And here's what it says in verse 10. Uh, to the church in Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Okay? So Jesus is writing to the church saying, hey, something's about to happen. Essentially, you, you'll be cast into prison. You will experience tribulation. All right? The word tested that appears there in verse 10 is a word that can mean both tempted and to be tested in a positive way. I think it has both meanings in the passage. It is the devil who is trying to tempt the believers in Smyrna uh, when they're in prison to say, no, 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 we, we don't worship God or Jesus. We, we'll do what you want. We'll make sacrifice to the idols, right? And they'll be released from prison. So the devil, who's mentioned here in the passage, is tempting them. The Lord God in his providence, as we see in this, this letter, is the one who's testing them. They enter into the refiner's fire, the dross, the impurities are being burned off, and they're being molded into the image of Jesus Christ, okay? So it's a very beautiful thing. And so uh, Jesus exhorts them. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear. Where the Ephesians were told, don't forget the love you had at first, that's their exhortation, the Smyrnans are told, do not fear what you're about to suffer. So let me ask you a question. The church in Smyrna is about to endure 10 days in prison. Um, what do you think is going to end their imprisonment? I mean, think about it. We're, we read here that they're going to be 10 days in prison. Um, do you think that the Roman authorities are going to say, listen, you have resisted, you refused to obey us, uh, we know that you're in non-compliance to the laws of Rome, but hey, terrific, you spent 10 days, uh, you can go. You can go your way. I mean, 10 days... Seems like a short time, doesn't it? If you read the, the letter correctly, we know from Jesus' words what will end their imprisonment. For he says, you may be tested for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Okay, so the exhortation to the church in Smyrna, it simply goes like this. You will be released from prison after 10 days, but it won't be to be released to the streets in Smyrna to go back to your homes. It will be that you will be released as you will be martyred for the sake of the gospel. And that is viewed by Jesus as he exhorts the Smyrna church as something far superior than being released to go back to their homes. For he says to them in verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And that's not the uh, we read of the descriptions of Jesus and he has the ten diadems on his head. Those are the crowns. This crown of life is the laurel or the wreath that would be placed on the victor's head when they won the race. It's very different than the kingly crown. 
Essentially, Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna, you will be persecuted, thrown in jail. After 10 days, you will be killed, but take heart. By being killed, you will achieve a victory. You will be crowned with the crown of life. And, and that will be very good. So here's the final question I want to ask then as you think about the, the church in Smyrna. The, the promise in verse 10 is that they will receive the crown of life. But here's the, the question, and it's probably even more complicated than the question to the Ephesian church. How, how do we return to the love that we had at first? How, how do we protect good doctrine but also love those around us? The question, very simply, that we reflect on regarding the church in Smyrna is this. How do we not fear what we're about to suffer? How do you do that? I mean, as Christians, some of us will suffer more, some of us will suffer less, but it is a guarantee because of who we are in Christ. It comes with the territory. Jesus has told us that you will suffer. Listen, the, the world persecuted me. Why do you think it won't persecute you? This is not your home. We've, we've been guaranteed this. So how do you not fear what you're about to suffer? It's a... It's a complicated thing to even think through. There are some who anticipate their suffering, some who have chronic illness, some who have sickness, who know what's about to come. How do you not fear what you know is about to come? There are some who are in the midst of suffering. You might ask them, how do you, in the midst of suffering, how, how are you not just consumed with fear? How is that not an everyday experience? Fear and suffering, they just seem to go together. How do you not fear what you're about to suffer? I, I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking, man, when I I have like a minor surgery and I can't sleep the night before. I'm, I'm so consumed with fear. I'm just thinking about all the things that could go wrong. How do you not fear what you're about to suffer? I think one of the very clear and beautiful answers that we see in this passage, it comes out of this text. We see it in the life of believers around us. You can read about it in the life of those who have been martyred for, for their Christian faith. In the last verse, Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me tell you something. How do, we, how do we not fear what we're about to suffer? I think it begins with getting some perspective, okay, for the church. Here's perspective. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus provides the illustration of the second death to compare to the first death. Essentially, what he's saying to the church in Smyrna, listen, what you're about to endure, the first death, yeah, that's something. It's significant. It will be hard. But let me tell you something. The second death is more final and more significant and more painful. And if you endure the first death, you will not have to endure the second death. That's perspective. Or you want to use the language from this book of Revelation. If you endure 10 days of prison, you will be given a thousand years reigning with Christ. There's some perspective. John Piper put it like this. I remember John Piper's words, not very many of them, but this stood out to me. John Piper said, when we are with Christ in his 700,000th year, in our 700,000th year in heaven, we will scarcely remember our 70 years on earth, okay? And I, and I think when we are together with him in, in eternity, you know what we'll do? We will sit together in eternity and we'll say, do you remember those 70 years on earth? Like, no, I don't remember. Do you remember I can't remember what happened. I know it was, it was not like this place, but I, I can't remember. We won't recall it. We will be so consumed. The perspective helps us to endure the suffering. That as the, as the Bible says, this is all passing away, that it is the steam from a boiling pot of water, that it's like the flower of the fields that are here today and gone tomorrow. 
that is a light momentary affliction as the Apostle Paul would describe it. We need perspective that we might not fear the suffering we're about to endure. Let me leave you with this. This is, this is Samuel Rutherford. And Samuel Rutherford, at this moment, when he writes these words, he's in prison. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He was a preacher of the gospel, a pastor of a church. Uh, the the ru- rulers at that time didn't think his religion was one of the approved religions, and they put him in prison. Listen to what he says about suffering. For me, this is, this is an, a, a summary of everything we just read to the church in Smyrna. If your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among the thorns. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ, for he has a sweet peace for the sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side, and if the wind is now in his face, you cannot expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. We need winnowing before we enter the kingdom. Oh, what I owe to the file, the hammer, and the furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. As we look back to our pains and our suffering, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. If we could smell of heaven and our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all he can He does, and he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or he comes with a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage, he says. I am your salvation. It's a wonderful explanation to the words of the church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, for I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died, and I'm the one who's alive forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you that you have sent us your Son, Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we have now been given instruction on how to live in these last days. You sent your Son and he turned the world on its head. And now you have told us how to live in a world turned upside down. Would you help us, our God and our Father, through your Spirit, in your Son, Christ Jesus, would you help us 
that we would follow you all the days of our life. Be gracious to us, our Lord God. Have mercy on us through your Son and make us to be more like him who is our Lord and our Savior, our King and our older brother. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.